Thank you. Very warm welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy we found the time to, to talk. I know that you're going back to the US very soon. So thank you for making the time to, to chat to us today. We're going to talk about a number of things today, but I just wanted to maybe go back to your childhood and understand whether your passion for writing stems from your childhood or is this something you discovered later down the line? Yeah, it's a great question. I feel like I, I think it was probably my father who introduced me to like stories when I was really young, like in kindergarten, he would like read me a different story every day before dropping me off to school. And I feel like that gave me a flair for just liking to listen to stories. And, and I started reading pretty early on, I would say, like I, I really, I kept devouring books from around ages like seven to eight. And then at the time it was mostly like, I really like this collection by R.L. Stein, Goosebumps, and it's kind of little horror books for children. Right, yeah. <laughs> sure. For children, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I must reading. look it up actually, because my, yeah. my daughter's 10, and yeah. for some yeah. unfathomable reasons, she, she loves horror books. I see. So, yeah, yeah I'll like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I feel like I, at some point I just had read so much of them that I kind of wanted to write my own story. So, and that's how I kind of slowly got into writing. And then, like, things like, kind of were put into place and, and then... Eventually. And how, how young did you start writing? I would say around 10 actually. I started wow, around 10. that's really young. Um, I was trying to write my first book when I was like finishing primary school. Mm-hmm. And, but my first publication was when I was 14, so four years later. Okay, so then when you went to university, you studied religion. Yes. Is there any particular reason why you chose this specific subject? Yeah, I feel like so. In the US, it's a little bit different. So there's have something called the liberal arts kind of system, where basically uh, you don't really have to choose a major before like two years into your studies. So for the first two years, I mostly just went and explored many different things, including religion, anthropology, literature, even geology. And it was only after two years that I decided to study religion specifically. And that's mostly because, I mean, there's several reasons, but I think mostly because I come from a very religious family and a very religious background and also a very religious country. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to kind of explore for myself, my own faith, for example, for myself, instead of like listening to what, I mean, I, I grew up very religious, so like trying to kind of see things from a critical angle. Yeah. And yeah, so I feel like I was able to understand myself, my faith, and also my family and heritage better through religion. Was there anything in your studies that, I mean, presumably you studied several religions rather yeah. than one specific one. So was there anything in your studies that shifted your perspective on, on things? Yeah, a lot. I feel like I keep, even now, I keep, every time I keep learning new things about my religions generally. Yeah, I feel like one of the most important things that I have been, that I, I guess was, that I learned when I was in, in university was that religion, the very term religion, is kind of a fabricated term from the 19th century. So like there was not really, like people who were practicing Islam, Christianity, or they were not really calling this religion at the time because there was such a religion in, in, in life. There was not this abstraction that is now made between religion. Like now we think of religion as something in the private sphere, but before like religion was everywhere. So, so I mean, in that sense, religion is kind of an artificial, Construct. Construct, exactly. Yeah. So and I think that's a very important, not just in terms of religion, but also when you think of society and like now I do anthropology, archaeology. So like to kind of understand where like our notions of how things work come from. So everything has a history, right? So 
and even the terms that we use. So I think I spent a lot of time thinking critically about those things, even when it comes to Islam, like why is it called Islam? Like what, what are the roots of the word Islam? And the same thing for other religions. So it's been very enriching. And how do you then make the link? You, you spoke about archaeology and I understand you're now yeah. going off to do a doctorate in that. So it seems two completely different fields. Do you, do you find that complementary? Was there a natural progression into archaeology? I think so. Again, when you think about it, like ancient societies did not really have a distinct term for religion. So in a, in a way, like everything was religious because something I wrote about was about how temples back in ancient times in ancient Mesopotamia were like also banks, like there was no difference. Really? Right? Yes, because they were storing goods and wow. precious things in, in okay. their temples and okay. then the gods would be kind of the bankers, they would be like protecting the, the wealth. So in, in that sense I feel like, you know, like there is this kind of very porosity, like this is kind of fluid barrier between uh, religion and, and what is not religious, that we would not think of as religious nowadays. So in that sense, like when you go and dig things, like when you're digging graves in archaeology, you will discover like things that, objects that we, would, we could consider to be religious now. So, because at the time, like, like I studied in Egypt, for example, for a bit, and like in Egypt, like the pharaohs were like buried with so many different objects that had ritual significance to them. So in that sense, religion and archaeology are very related because the things that you see, that like you find inside the earth, have some degree of significance that could be considered religious too. Sure. So do, do you feel that, I mean, I'm trying to understand the kind of the why behind your, your passion as well. So do, do you think that informing yourself or educating yourself on our past would inform us on the possibilities for the future? I mean, or, or are you just interested in I want to know where I'm from, yeah. why we're here, etc. Yeah. Et well, I feel like that's a, you know, I feel like I don't really make that much of a distinction because in a sense, like it is a continuity, right? Like if I understand who I am now and like kind of understand my origins and the origins of the world, then I feel like that automatically means that I'm also thinking about the future in the sense of, I feel like history, for example, repeats itself all the time. And I think we're the same, like the human beings that we are now are not very different from the human beings that existed like 4,000 years ago. So I feel like by learning about them, I'm also learning about us in a way. So, and I think that that's a kind of continuity that I kind of see in, in archaeology. And have you chosen your, your theme yet? Are you meant to have chosen your thesis yeah. title? Yeah, when I applied, not a title yet, but when I applied to doctoral programs, I had to propose something. So, and my, my idea, my proposal so far, it's still very vague, but it's about archaeology in the Indian Ocean. Because I feel like the Indian Ocean is one of the least studied areas in archaeology, anthropology, or any other field really. It's kind of an emerging field. So when I say Indian Ocean, it includes Mauritius, but also the other islands in the Indian Ocean, and all the coast of Africa as well, Madagascar, and even India, parts of India. So are you hoping for some exploratory trips as well? Hopefully, yes. So yeah. in the US, like they do kind of fund a lot of research projects. So hopefully something having to do with traveling through the ocean. Because I also, something also that interests me is like different trading routes like across the Indian Ocean. Because we think often when we think of archaeology, we think exclusively of land. But there's a lot of relationships between land and water that, are, that could be explored as well. Yeah. Also, I mean, I don't know whether we're getting into kind of fiction there, and I can't, I'm trying to remember the name of the author. I think it was de, de Chazal yes. who wrote about the, the lost continent. Yes, uh, uh, Lemurie. Yes, Lemurie. exactly. Yeah. 
I mean, who knows? There might be, right. you know, yeah. some somewhere, some course, yeah. some some truth in that. Yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting history. I mean, the the whole like myth of Lemuria is interesting because it's still a theory, but there was like it, it was developed because of the presence of uh, Lemurians, so, like the little animals with big eyes mm. who are found in Madagascar. Once you see in Madagascar, yeah. exactly. Yes. <laughs> I remember so, because yeah, exactly. of the film. <laughs> yes, exactly. So they actually they found it in Madagascar, but also in Malaysia, yeah. and I think the scientists were trying to understand how. They could have been distributed two of those really distant lands. So he kind of invented, like, created an idea that maybe there was some kind of lost continent before that then eventually got fractured. And, yeah, and submerged. Exactly, and submerged. So, okay. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So then, right, I'm going to make the jump back into writing now. So how do you then reconcile? So <laughs> you're, you're going to do a doctorate in archaeology, but you, you obviously still have a passion for writing. What does writing bring to you personally? Well, to me personally, I feel like it's something that I discovered like since I was very young. So I feel like it was there before even archaeology or any of my academic stuff. But I feel like it's also complementary in a way because specifically for a field like archaeology, like there's a lot of silences in archaeology or anything having to do with history in the past because you, you do find things but the more things you find the more, the more questions, questions you have, you have yeah. exactly right yeah. and i feel like one and and some of the things you will have to understand that you can't always have the answers to them so and i think a way of reaching something of an answer is through fiction imagination and trying to imagine and understand through imagination how things could have been and you'll never maybe get the scientific information of those things but it's i feel like fiction helps me still kind of ground myself in the object of my studies and like kind of helps me think about the questions that that are that come out of my research and are you always writing on something? Do you always have something on the go? <laughs> I'd say so. Even if I'm not like actually writing, it's always in my mind. So I'm always brainstorming and thinking about yeah, writing. Ideas. So that your latest work was Insectarium and won a prize. I think you've won many prizes over the years. But that's, that's the one I read. And it definitely wasn't what I expected. I'm not going to, because I want people to read it, I'm not going to say exactly what it's about. But I wanted to ask you, so there's two sort of almost taboo subjects in it. One, one less than the other, but why did you decide to go there? Yeah, it's a, it was a very difficult subject. But I think to me it was this idea of like literature being able to enter like forbidden zones, things that we don't talk about in society, but that still are happening. So I feel like for me, like literature is a way, and writing is a way to poke at those things that are forbidden and explore and somehow maybe like reveal the truth about them. So I feel like one of the very contentious things that I touched upon is the theme of homosexuality and Islam, like two very two things that people won't talk about or if they do, it's in very kind of violent terms. Mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, there exist so many homosexuals who are Muslim and that I personally know of in, in Mauritius. So, I feel like if, if we're not talking about them, if we're not talking about those things, then there's this kind of erasure that's done. So, and I think like literature is a way for us to just put things as they are and, and you know, so like kind of remove people from being forgotten by history. I understand. Yeah. And, and given that your, your background and your passion for religion, you grew up in a religious family, do you, do you see that, for example, the thing that you mentioned as something that can be reconciled within the within the yeah within the scope of your 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 specific religion 
Yeah, I think it's, it's, very, it's very contentious again, and I feel like obviously a lot of people will not agree with that, but I feel like sexuality as, 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 a, as a distinct identity is also a very recent thing, just like religion is, in the sense that in, in the past people like were not thinking of themselves as gay or lesbian or as if we're just people, you know, and if they happen to have relationships that we would consider homosexual now, they were not thinking about them as in that way. So, I mean, I think of ancient Greece where that was very normal. Absolutely. And like, and even like in, and, that, and a lot of people don't know that, but like in the Islamic societies before pre-colonial Islamic like empires, like mm-hmm. the Abbasids, Mughals in India or the Ottomans in Turkey, it was very normal for sultans to have like adolescent boys or like often just men in their harems. Like there were as many men as women probably. So it was not... Well, I think you touch on yeah, that. I in touched the, on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I remember seeing that, and I thought yeah. it, it must be true because the way you describe it, I thought that it. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure it. it yeah, a lot of historical research behind it. Sure. So like, and other people don't know that because when when those categories of sexuality were invented, kind of in the late 19th century, it was kind of this whole erasure of this whole part of Islam, where like not just homosexuality, but also like wine drinking, for example. Like there was a lot of alcohol in those empires as well. I'm not saying it's Islamic or not, but like, it was objectively there you know so and I feel like it's important to remain honest when we are talking about history and like so whether it can be reconciled like in on in theological terms I don't know but like in, but in terms of like re, the reality that is happening then it did definitely happen so like yeah, yeah. yeah. so in that sense yes and how how do you find when you're obviously you're writing fiction but particularly evolving in a in a Mauritian society we had another writer a few a few months ago, Davina Itu, and she also touches on taboo subjects. And so I asked her that question, I'll ask you as well. So do you find that, you know, where friends and family and, and people in general are, are reading the work that you do, particularly when you touch on controversial themes, do they accept that this is fiction and this is just a creative outlet? You know, it's difficult. Like my parents have not read Insectarium and I haven't let, I, I'm not letting them read it either because I mean they've already kind of do they know what it's about I don't think so so okay. <laughs> uh, they haven't really asked many questions about sure. it like my dad is a little more curious but my mom she my mom and I kind of got into a clash at some point when I was 16 I, I wrote published a collection of poetry and the title was orgasms or orgasm sure. uh, which was kind of the, the the publisher's kind of choice rather than my own and it was kind of like to I mean you see that title like you kind of, of course it's sort of, almost yeah. a sort of clickbait <laughs> exactly clickbait so my parents at the time were really kind of angry at that because they I don't know if it was protectiveness or like just the, sure. they, they're also very conservative Muslims so it was difficult for them to so it, since then since I was 16 they've kind of taken some distance from my writing so they don't really read what I write anymore and other family members as well like there has been this kind of disconnect where like it's kind of like don't ask don't tell so they, they know sure, that I'm writing sure. about things they probably would not agree with but I still do it because I'm not writing for them yes and, and also it is at the end of the day it is it, it is fiction so yeah, exactly. it's it, in all its form you know like if you even if you look at uh, Lolita for example exactly, it, right. it is it's... a it is a, a literary piece of work and it is fiction but it doesn't mean that it condones absolutely yeah and I feel like that's something people uh, have a hard time understanding because I mean there's been a lot of literary theorists I think I'm thinking of somebody called uh, Maurice Blanchot who talks about something called l'espace littéraire, the yeah. literary space, which to him is, uh, and also Georges Bataille, who wrote about something called la littérature et le mal, mm-hmm. 
uh, literature and evil. And according to, to those people, like literature is kind of this space where everything is possible, you know. Did you study literature at school? Yeah, I did. So. And so and why did you, I'm just curious, so what you did, did you do English and French at, up to A-levels? Yes, or, I did. So then why did you not choose a degree in English or? Yeah, I think, well, I think it's, you know, it's always like, again, in the US, everything is very interdisciplinary. So even I when see. I'm studying, when I'm studying religion and I'm writing my thesis on the Quran, I'm still doing a lot of literature behind that because I'm, I'm, my whole thesis was actually about the Quran as literature and how do we understand the Quran as a work of literature and and that took a lot I mean I had to read a lot of literature and like literary theory for that to happen so sure and now you're doing a literary translation into French of, of the Quran what's the difference between a normal translation because I didn't question. know <laughs> it's a great question yeah it's one that I get asked a lot I think the main difference is Historically, the Quran has not been seen as a work of literature in the sense that often people look at the Quran and think of it as a constitutional text, almost like something that has a set of rules that I'm yes, yeah, exactly with. rules and regulations. Yeah. So it's actually not that at all. Like the Quran is actually like if you listen to it and you and you, I mean, literally the Quran means recitation, right? The word Quran means recitation in Arabic, and because it's meant to actually be listened to, and and oh really? Yeah, because because actually like back then. That was kind of how Islam, I think, gained so much popularity back in the, in the days of, of the Prophet and Muhammad and everything because the Qur'an was meant as a recitation that was beautiful to listen to. So it was kind of a performance. So in that sense, people would actually listen to the Qur'an and then be kind of moved by the words and, and the musicality of the text. So in that sense, it is a very kind of artistic craft, a creation that is artistic in that sense. And obviously that, that gets lost in translation because sure. when you're translating the Qur'an from the original Arabic, that is very poetic, that is very rhymed, musical, yeah. musical, into French or English, then you kind of, and, and now you're thinking about the text as a series of rules and regulations, I and mean, you don't really have the sensibility to keep that musicality and keep the beauty of the text. So I feel like a, trans, a literary translation of the Quran would actually do those things by like not, the content is less important than the actual form, like how are you translating the rhymes and how are you keeping the rhymes or... It's really difficult because obviously there's a very big difference between Arabic and French or English. And um, it's never been done before, the literary done, Which is surprising, in, in 1400 mm. years. I know, it is um, surprising. Yeah, and the first and person... What, what, to, yeah. what uh, sort of inspired you to do that? Yeah, so the first person who actually talked about this problem is a Mauritian whose name is Shauka Turawa. He's a professor at Yale University, and he, he wrote an article, a very short article, where he explains that nobody has ever done that before, and which is kind of shocking in a way. And being Russian, I kind of got in touch with him as well, and we kind of discussed this. And, and me being a writer, I think, and I think he has tried to do a little bit, like a few parts of the Quran, he has tried to keep the rhymes, but he tells me himself that he's not, he's not a poet, so he, it's kind of not as, he's more academic than, and, but I feel like I kind of have the pedigree in the sense, the sensibility to potentially do, and I've also studied Arabic when I was at Harvard. So, so I'm able to read the Quran in the original and I'm able to get the musicality of the text and I'm now trying to, and since I also have the same sensibility with French and English to some extent, like I'm just trying to do that work that Shaukat Turawa has been trying to do in, in kind of more literary, in a more literary way. It must be so hard because obviously if you do a literal translation, it's easy to find a match, uh, an accurate match, but you want to do the translation, keep the rhyme, but not lose you don't want to change the message, exactly. basically. Yeah. And that's it's a big problem too, because yeah. there's an obsession with meaning and what that means. But 
in my personal perspective, I feel like the Quran is more, it's like literature. Literature always has multiple meanings, right? So like when you're reading a novel, like you kind of interpret it the way that your own sensibility allows you to interpret it. So and I think that's the case with the Quran. I don't think there's one meaning that imams should tell you, like this is the meaning of the text. Like I think the Quran is open and accessible and also rich enough for any individual to find what they want to see mm. inside the Quran. So, so in that sense, I feel like even if obviously I'm striving to keep the original meanings as much as I can, but like there's always nuances when you're translating it in a certain way. And then that's also the case with literal translations because the translator always have to make, has to make a choice. Like there's no like, you can't objectively translate the Arabic into English in a way that would be 100% accurate. So like you're already making those choices. So you might, might as well, I feel like even a musical literary translation of the Quran would, I am making different choices perhaps, but I'm still keeping kind of the gist of the message. Yeah, the, the essence. And I, I completely agree with you. You know, like if I make a comparison with the Bible, I think, you know, you, you've, you would have school of thoughts that would have a literal interpretation yes. of it, but there are so many meanings that you could ascribe to even like a small passage and see, you know, the first of all, you've got to understand the context in which it was written. And also, you know, well, this is my personal view. I don't think it's meant to be interpreted literally. And it must be the same for other religious texts yeah, as well. Absolutely. I feel like, yeah, I think the whole, whole idea of literal translation, like literal interpretation to me, it has to do with power, you know, like because like a group of people like come together and tell you that this is the Quran, so this is the Bible's meaning. And if you think, if you're not allowed to think for yourself. So like it's kind of in, it becomes like kind of this, apparatus of social control yes which which is why you know as you said i mean you know luckily we have evolved but as you said in olden times it was everything was one it was the religion was the law and and now you've got more and more secular societies but yeah i just think this whole area is fascinating i'm very intrigued to see how your dive into archaeology will impact or affect your perspective on this so i'll I'll check in in a few years time to see how how you how you're getting on for sure i'm working on a novel right now so that's Mm -hmm. my current project in french or in english french yes which which kind of talks about that a little bit the archaeology but also kind of religion and islam everything i've told you kind of explores it in a kind of more in fiction kind of more like there's a main character who like thinks about those things is it a contemporary novel in in it's based in mauritius i mean there's a it's it's very kind of autofictional in a way like there's this character who is muslim Mm -hmm. who comes from from the u.s and back to mauritius and he he's an archaeologist so like okay like you yeah (laughs) exactly So, uh, and I've done some digs in Mauritius, so... And, oh, wow. Yeah, Did, so. Where, if may I ask? So, yeah, of course. It was last year. So, there's a group uh, at Stanford University. That's a professor who is also Mauritian. His name is Krish Sita, mm-hmm. who's been digging in Mauritius for a few years now. For actually, like, it's been almost a decade, actually, at several different sites. And I joined his team last year, and we dug in Albion. Albion, we found, like, we discovered a a clandestine, like a secret graveyard of potentially enslaved people. So like, because it was, I, I, say, I say secret because it's not in any archives, like there's no mention of it anywhere. And we just, we found 13 skeletons, just kind of. Wow. Yeah. Why did he decide, did he have a sort of a clue? Why did yeah, he choose so that? Yeah, so what happened was, it was, it's private property and like, and people around the area were digging the ground for swimming pools and they would often find skeletons. But at some point somebody was like, no, I can't just get rid of it. I'm going to inform higher authorities. Like, so they informed the ministry and like, 
And Krish is affiliated with the National Heritage Foundation. So like they got permission to dig from the owner onto that plot of land. And wow. Yeah. So wow, we found 13 skeletons, uh, potentially enslaved people. Like we're not sure yet. And are there tests that you can do to yes. find out uh, kind of the age of... Yeah. Yes, and you can do DNA tests as well. So like I, right now, I think as we speak, the skeletons were, were taken to a laboratory, I think somewhere in Denmark. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. Very high spec. Like, yes, <laughs> yeah. like DNA tests to be... From the looks of it, like the vertebra of the, the individuals show like signs of like hard work and manual labor because the, the, the spine would like crush a little bit. Right. Okay. So... And also like the, the bones which were wears and tears, so like kind of reflecting perhaps a life of hard work. So potentially, we know they were not, probably not like colonizers. Or something. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm also intrigued to find out what the results from Denmark yeah. say. One question I, I had that was I was really intrigued by, because obviously you studied in the US, but most of your work, if I'm not mistaken, is in French. Yeah, my, my literary, yeah, my writing is in French. Yes. Yeah. Why? Yeah, it's a great question too. I feel like I started off in French, so I feel like there's been this kind of very instinctive, because I feel like I've been thinking in French from a very young age. Like, okay. I speak in Creole with my parents, but like... And you went to a state school, I right? went to state yeah. school as well, so, but I don't really remember when, but like, I feel like when I was really, really young, my, my father spoke, was speaking in French to me like the first few years until I was four or something. And then we switched to Creole, but then I was also watching a lot of cartoons in French and it was like Cartoon Network and like, so I feel like I just, at this point of my, my cerebral development, I just kind of saw French as like my Your natural language, first my, language. Exactly. So I, I remember I was thinking in French back then so, and I never, I never actually think in Creole, like it's just not, it never came to me naturally, even though I speak it now with my parents. So even like when obviously you spent a, a lot of years in, in the US, so even then, do you think you, you naturally think in French? And now a little more in English as well. But like I did keep French as kind of my main language because I, even in the US, I tried to always reach out to like just Francophone clubs or societies sure. or like French, Francophone, French speaking people on campus. Because I've always been kind of around those people. So I tried to keep my French. Not sure, it. sure. And who are your favorite Mauritian authors? That's a good question. I think I would say Anna Davies probably. Well, it's beyond favorite. I feel like it's just, I'm, I'm also really, I, we know each other like pretty well. Like she was probably the one who introduced me really to literature in a way. Like, I mean, I, I was reading those children's books back then, but like when I was 14, I published, I mean, I, I wrote my first kind of, kind of short novel and I, I submitted it to that competition that Anna Davies was sort of the president of the jury of that competition. And, and she, I, I was 14 and she really loved the manuscript and she kept encouraging me since to keep writing. Oh, that's good. And I feel like now it's been, I'm 26 now, so it's been 12 years and we're wow. still in touch. You've kept in touch, so, that's yeah. wonderful. Because so, yeah. that's the other question I asked Davina as well, it was whether, do you think that, I mean, obviously you don't live here anymore, but do you think aspiring and budding Mauritian writers have access to mentors and, and support? I was very lucky in that sense, I think. On top of Ananda Devi, there was also, there's a writer called Berlin Piamutu, mm -hmm. who, when I was around that age as well, he was, uh, he doesn't do that anymore, but he was heading writing workshops, like creative writing workshops at, at EFM, the French Institute. And so I, I kind of 
took advantage of that. So I, I met Balan and we also became pretty close. Like he was a very good mentor as well. He was very different from Anna Devi because Anna Devi is very kind of generous and encouraging in her right in her in her advice. But Balan, on the other hand, is very kind of strict. Like right, so okay, way, more rigid and disciplined. Exactly. And, yeah. So I feel okay. I got the best of both worlds sure, in that sense. Sure. So they both. I, I would think of them as like my literary. Godfather and Godmother. Oh, that's so there was that, but I think I, we kind of lost that because Balan stopped after a few years when I went to the US. I don't think there was any opportunity anymore for younger writers to be mentored by older ones. So, so when I came back to Mauritius last year, I started my own kind of little program that lasted eight months and it's finishing tomorrow. I think that's wonderful. And I, I think that's how I first heard about you because I saw an article in, I think, L'Express and I thought that that's such a beautiful idea to, in a way, to, to give back. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. did you see any good potential? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it was very successful and I'm, I'm very sad that I'll have to end it because I'm leaving. And I think my students are really sad too. But I think, yeah, it was a lot of potential, not just literary, but also human potential. I feel like a lot of things that have like around 20 students. And I feel like what really came out of... of what was the age group, if I may ask? 18 to like seven, 67. Okay. Okay. So oh, like wow. Really yeah. Wow. So all ages. And I feel like what really came out is a lot of them, like, you know, through writing, they talk about those taboos we were talking about earlier, where like Mauritius is such a kind of... Sometimes I want to say stuck society. We're very kind of we don't is a, a big communication issue. Like we, we're not we're afraid to speak of things that matter. A lot of things that came out in that little circle, which was, I call it the creative writing circle, and it was a safe space where everybody was allowed to be who they were. And so like a lot of things came out, like stories about rape, sexual abuse, sexual assault, homosexuality, or like just a lot of things that those people would not have dared speak of. And now they're writing about it. So like, I feel like beyond just teaching them, like helping them to write better, I kind of help them kind of just... Un- unblock some, yeah. some perhaps dark aspects of Yeah, of or like be more, be more in touch with themselves in mm. a way that's less kind of repressive and open yes. up. That, that, and I think that's the essence of literature. Literature, I think, is not... I mean, obviously, that you need to have some talent in order to write something well. But I think if you don't have the, the genuine essence that, that, that comes from all the trauma and all the darkest things that we live through i think then literature kind of lacks it will it will lack something if you don't if you're unable to unlock that part of yourself so and so i think that's the biggest thing that i was able to achieve with my students was be able to have them open up and like get out and and just be vulnerable in their writing and 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 i'm very happy that they were able to do that yeah that's wonderful last question for you this this is a question i asked of Mauritian athletes, because I've been interviewing Mauritian athletes as well, and I'm not sure what answer you'll give me. The, the question I've been asking them is, what do they think is more important, talent or hard work? And all of them have said hard work. But I think writing is different. So do you think if I have an interest in writing and I practice and I practice every day I write, I journal, do you think someone could become a better writer? Or do you think there needs to be some creative spark? Yeah. So I would say personally that there should be a balance between talent and hard work. I feel like writing itself, like no matter how much you write, you will not improve unless you tap, are able to tap into what I just talked about, which is kind of the inner side of writing, but also I think reading. Something I tell my students all the time is a good writer is a good reader. So like if you're not reading, then you're not going to write well because the more you read, the more you can expose to different ways of writing, different styles and different different voices. And I feel like 
in order for you to cultivate your own voice, you have you need to have both have the sensibility to you have to listen to yourself first of all, and then second of all, you have to be able to listen to others in a way. So kind of finding your voice among kind of different voices that exist. So in that sense, I feel like writing is more complicated because it's not just about hard work and it's also about a certain sensibility that some people have more than others. I don't know if it's innate or not, but I feel like it's, I think it's something that you can develop on your own, which is just being, being more in tune with yourself and more in tune with your inner emotions and thoughts. Because I, I noticed that a lot of the, my students, when I ask them to write stories about, like every week I give them a different theme, something different to write about. And, and it's easier for them to write fiction about like a character that they invent than to write about themselves often. So, and, and, and at some point my last exercise was actually like give them was utter fiction, like writing about themselves, like something that is close to their hearts. And that's when I think their writing became even more powerful because they have been able to harness something that is beyond just writing down words. So, and I think literature is both in that sense. It's both hard work because you do need practice, but at the same time you need, you need something else that is not just writing. Yeah, and I, and I think, as you said, I think you can be more authentic if not if you're writing about yourself, but there is some some sort of personal investment in, exactly. in that. I was talking to someone who's a coach recently, and I was she does she runs a program on presentational skills, and I said to her that I have an, an upcoming lecture which is very technical, so it's going to be by nature quite boring. So, and then she told me about the art of storytelling, and and I think it rejoins slightly what what you just said. Yes, obviously, fic fiction is is storytelling by its very nature, but I think you're able to better connect with the audience if there's an authentic voice. Yes, in exactly. It. Yeah. Yeah, and something I tell my students is often. Something that, my, I think my personal touch to writing is to appeal to the senses, to talk about, you probably saw that in Exitarium. Yes, yes. It's a lot about the visuals and the smells yes. and the There tastes. was one point so, that yeah. actually, yeah. <laughs> I was having my lunch yeah, when I, I was reading it and there was something about the patient that he'd just seen with I like know. snot yeah. over, and I was like, oh. Right, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but you're quite right yeah. because you, I had this picture in my mind, so it's, it's yeah, very graphic. and Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like literature becomes even more powerful if you're able to appeal to the senses. And I think that's true of presentations as well. When you're like, if you're telling something uniquely in like kind of cerebral, like kind of terms, people do tend to disconnect at some point. You're using their minds too much. But if you're using their sense of smell and taste and touch, then you're, you're activating other ways of discovering literature, which is more sensual. Powerful, so powerful. And so you're currently writing your next novel. When may we see it? <laughs> a great question. Uh, already, so I have a publisher who's been kind of hounding me to, to send him something. Uh, okay. But he wanted me to finish it by September, but I don't think I'll be able to, but I'm still working on it. And I'm hoping by the end of the year. So Wonderful. Okay, well, we look forward to reading it. And best of luck in your studies. You so I hope you find some very interesting things and I hope that you, you come back and dig in, in our region. And yeah, best of luck for the yeah. future. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you.